Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Matthew Green, who is the author of Underdog Politics, The Minority Party in the U.S. House of Representatives. Matt's book is published by Yale University Press. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with him. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Heath Brown again. Today uh, we'll be talking with Matthew Green, who is the author of Underdog Politics, The Minority Party in the U.S. House of Representatives, published by Yale University Press in 2015. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. You're an associate professor of politics at Catholic University of America and an associate fellow at the Institute for Policy Research and Catholic Studies, which are all uh, very established uh, and, and important things. But part of what leads you to the book is um, is your own experiences. And so before we actually get to what, what is in this interesting book, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your background and the time you spent uh, on Capitol Hill and and uh, whether you're part of the minority or the majority most of the time. So tell us a little bit about where, where you have been. Sure. Uh, well, I uh, after uh, I graduated from college, uh, UC Santa Cruz, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And uh, I ended up uh, going to Washington and um, was able to get a job on Capitol Hill. And I worked for a House member who's still there, Congressman Sam Farr from the Santa Cruz Monterey area of California. And I started in December of 1993 when the Democrats were the majority. And uh, I was there for five years. So I was there during the 1994 elections when the Republicans took back control of the House, which was a, um, a very, um, uh, very profound experience, certainly for every, anyone who was there on Capitol Hill, but certainly for an impressionable 24-year-old to see just how important it is, which party has more seats in the House of Representatives, and keep in mind, this was after 40 years of Democratic rule, so it was a big deal on Capitol Hill. And then for the rest of my time there on the Hill, we were in the minority. So um, I felt fortunate to see what it was like to be in the majority and the minority and get a sense of the kinds of things that minority parties can and can't do. And also some of the things they have to struggle with and the challenges they have when they're in the minority in the House. Um, and then uh, I sort of continued to follow what was happening on Capitol Hill when I went to graduate school and um, got interested in how Democrats in particular were dealing with their situation. And then the Republicans lost control of the House in 2006. At that point, uh, I was a faculty member at Catholic University. And uh, and I started going to Capitol Hill to see what it was like for the Republicans when they were in the minority. Uh, and I talk about a little bit of that in the book, watching some of the things they were doing on the House floor, on um, some unusual stunts, you might say, to um, to try to address the concerns that they had and, and, to, and to try to better their situation. So all this uh, <clears throat> personal experience and things I observed um, sort of motivated me and uh, motivated me to, to do some serious um, uh, analysis of what the minority party really is in the House and what they can do. And this book was the result. Yeah. And, and you know, most of, most begin, even those that I think, you know, are in the know to some extent, begin with the assumption that the minority party in the House 
is not just powerless, um, but also largely uninteresting. Um, I wonder how much of your effort in this book is to is to simply overturn that that conventional wisdom. I think that's a good amount of what I'm trying to do in this book, and I suppose some of it is self-interested because I wrote a book about it, so I think it's interesting, and I think others right. think it's interesting too. But it actually, it really is interesting and important, and it's one of the themes of the book is that the minority party is not this helpless, useless entity that's just waiting until they get a turn at the majority, but they are a group of uh, individuals who are elected to make policy, and they are trying to find ways to influence policy and also to achieve other goals that they have, and that they're more successful at it than people realize. So it's not just the minority in the Senate which has influence, which is what gets most attention in the media and among scholars, but it's also the minority party in the House that can influence outcomes as well. You begin your study in the early 1970s. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why this is the right point to start this, this analysis and, and start your discussion of the subject. Well, there are a couple of reasons why I start the analysis in the 1970s. Um, well, for one thing, I'm interested in I am interested in political history. So I wanted to understand how things have changed since from the 1970s to now. And a lot of the things that the minority party does today that we take for granted were things that were developed or introduced by individual members of Congress in the 1970s. So I, I thought it was important to understand the origins of these things, which is one reason I start there. Another reason that I start at that time is that the last really great academic book about the minority party that was written is uh, Charles Jones's book on the minority party, which was published in 1970. And it's an important basis for this book. And it's a it's an outstanding analysis of the minority party in the House. But the House was such a different place at the time in which he's writing. And it seemed to me that if one was going to study the minority party today, it would be good to start where he left off and see, well, what's changed since then and why? And uh, on top of that, um, you know, so many of the things that we uh, scholars and also observers think about when it comes to Congress, particularly polarization, party politics and party conflict, um, developed over the course of time from the 70s and 80s to now. So in some ways, it's a nice start. 1970, yes, the House is partisan, but it's nowhere near as partisan as it is now. So in telling the story of the minority party in the House, I'm also able to tell a story about its part in or its role in bigger issues like big issues like polarization, party conflict, the kinds of things that we see in Congress today. One of the, I, I think, fun things about studying the House is, is you have just so many people to study. I mean, you, you mentioned your interest in political history. Um, you just have so, so many different characters, but some of the characters are also outside of uh, a house. And I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about, about Guy Vanderjat. Uh, a name that that most people probably don't know, but but features into you know some of the this change that you you show that starts in the seventies and moves forward. How does this person fit into your story? What is what's the role that he played? So Guy Vanderjagt is one of those members of the minority party in uh, in the early period seventies and eighties that I talk about in the book, who is um, experimenting with and trying new ways to improve the status of the minority party. Um, and that is one of the themes of the book as well, is the role of innovators and entrepreneurs. Uh, most people talk about Newt Gingrich, which we can talk about later, but um, one of the things I like to do in the book is point to all these other folks 
who were um, in the House of Representatives, mostly Republicans in the 1970s and 80s, who were coming up with new techniques and tactics. So Guy Vanderjack um, was um, was an innovator with respect to campaigns. And uh, in the early, late 60s, early 70s, both parties in the House didn't have the best developed campaign operations. They tended to be relatively low key. They didn't have a lot of money. Um, it was a very decentralized and laissez-faire approach to campaigning where people wanted to run, they ran. And if they won, they won. If they lost, they lost. And if anything, you protected incumbents. And what Guy Vanderjagt did was look at ways in which the Republicans in the House could raise more money, tap money from outside the House, uh, outside donors, um, and then also start building up a network of funding within the House of Representatives and sort of help to develop this sense among Republicans that they all had a common stake in helping their party win more seats. And so uh, he was a very important player in moving this campaign operation away from a laissez-faire approach to something that's more centralized and more focused on the party collectively. Uh, and he was a very important player and, um, and a very ambitious member. And he, um, you know, he ran for, for leadership at one point, higher leadership, and, and did not succeed. But to the extent he got as far as he did, uh, I would argue, it's because he was introducing these new techniques and tactics to help the Republican Party improve itself in, uh, in elections. Now, as you just alluded to, and we can't have a conversation without talking about Newt Gingrich. Um, you mentioned that, that you, were, you were there during, during this Gingrich revolution. I wonder if you could talk about um, sort of what, what, what Gingrich actually was innovative around, and, and also uh, wh- whether we credit him with too much, um, you know, credit or blame him with, with too much. Um, you know, there, there were uh, Democrats working on on similar um, strategies and tactics at the same time. So I wonder if you could sort of uh, walk us through the role that uh, Gingrich plays as a member of the minority and and uh, you know what the limits of the credit and blame that are that are due to him. So uh, the first thing I'd say is that um, I too uh, am naturally a skeptic of the kind of great man theory or it's all one person theory, I guess, of politics mm-hmm. and history. So I came into this project assuming that Newt Gingrich's role in uh, the minority party and how it's changed over time is grossly exaggerated. Um, What I found was he did play a big part in a lot of the innovations that were going on in the 70s and 80s in the House of Representatives among the minority Republicans, and that a lot of those innovations were then copied by Democrats. Um, So, for instance, we're talking about campaigns. Um, Guy Vanderjack was a very important figure. Newt Gingrich was also an important figure in elections, particularly the formation of uh, GOPAC, this um, outside uh, campaign operation or political action committee, as it were. And also not just raising money, but reaching out to potential future candidates and saying, hey, this is uh, something you should consider doing, running for office. And oh, if you do, by the way, here are some terms you can use, techniques you can use to win office. And one of the famous examples of that was a a young man from Ohio who had gotten this tape from Newt Gingrich that he put in his cassette player when he was driving around that talked about, um, you know, opportunity and innovation and how there needed to be more Republicans in the House to really change the direction of the country. And, and the person listening to that tape was quite inspired. And that was, in fact, none other than John Boehner, who is now speaking mm-hmm. of the House. So um, there are stories like that throughout the book of Gingrich 
playing a very important role in electioneering, also messaging. Uh, he was extremely important in turning one-minute morning speeches into campaign platforms and very partisan-type um, type language and rhetoric, and also uh, obstructing, helping to slow things down. So he was a very important player. Having said that, though, and I'm glad you mentioned Guy Vanderjack, uh, I in the book I make it clear that much of what helped the Republicans succeed as a minority party, and then, of course, Democrats afterwards, was a team effort. So Gingrich uh, is often known, for instance, often people associate him with the Contracts for America, this platform of agenda items that the Republicans would implement if they took control of the House in 1994, which they they did take over the House, and so that became their, their uh, guideline for their agenda. But that contract with America was not written just by Newt Gingrich. It was written by a, a number of other Republicans in the House, and they also used um, they used um, uh, you know they, they used uh, you know individuals. They had folks come in and sort of sample these things to see if they were resonant with voters. So uh, it was a, very much a team operation. So there were a lot of people. There are other people I talk about in the book besides Guy Vanderjack, like Robert Walker from Pennsylvania, um, David Dreyer from California. There were a lot of Republicans who were uh, and Dick Armey also who were either part of a team uh, or they were coming up with things on their own, distinct or apart from Newt Gingrich. And, um, and, and similarly, when Democrats were in the minority after 1994, it wasn't just Dick Gephardt coming up with ideas. You had Rosa DeLauro, who was playing a role. Um, you had many other Democrats that were working collectively or individually. So, uh, so yes, Newt Gingrich is a very important figure in minority party politics in the 70s and 80s, but he wasn't the only one. Now, let's talk about two things that you just raised in uh, obstruction and also Congressman Dreyer, um, because what, what most uh, people associate with Congress these days is some form of obstruction. Um, uh, but we often assume that the House rules make obstruction harder in the House than in the Senate. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit ab about obstruction as as a tactic in the House and a House uh, minority party tactic and, and why the minority party might might turn to it and, and how effective it is as a tactic for meeting some of their varied goals. So obstruction in the House does happen. Now, it's not on the same level as the filibuster in the Senate. It's extremely difficult to block a bill altogether in the House of Representatives because the minority can affect, effectively bring things to the floor as they wish, and they can structure the terms of debate for those things or the ways in which they're voted on in order to, uh, to move the process through. But there are, um, there, it's, it, it's impossible to block obstruction altogether in any legislative body, and the House is no exception. So there are rules and techniques that the minority party can do to slow things down. Sometimes it's just 15 minutes. Sometimes it can be an hour, two hours, three hours. And what that does is several things. First of all, it allows the minority to express their opposition to something, which is important. The second thing it does is it conveys to the uh, that's, to the minority is upset. It conveys to the majority uh, that this is bothersome enough that they're willing to slow things down and sometimes make a lot of things, people create a lot of inconvenience for members of both parties. Um, if there's something that's very important that has to be passed, the House is about to go into recess or um, funding's going to run out if a bill doesn't pass, then obstruction can be quite useful because it really does matter that something gets done quickly. Um, 
And so uh, I talk about in the book about these different, I have some examples that I discuss, and then I look at a couple of rules in the House that can be used if they're in the rules of the House and any member can do them, which is to effectively say, I vote that we be done for the day. Now, those votes rarely pass because the majority doesn't want to be done for the day, but those votes have to be taken, and that's 15 minutes right there. So sometimes the minority does those votes over and over and over and over again to slow things down. And so what I show in the book is that there are a number of reasons the minority can do this. But what was interesting in my analysis of some of these rules is that they are correlated, in fact, with the majority either giving up a bill or um, agreeing with the minority on something and saying, fine, we'll change the bill or we'll let you offer an amendment that we wouldn't before or we were going to make things bad for you. Now we won't. So uh, to that extent, obstruction is surprisingly effective in the House of Representatives more than than people might think. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had Thomas Schaller on the, the podcast, and he was talking about um, some of the sort of the consequences for Republicans in the House and sort of in their pursuit of control, they have given up aspirations um, uh, uh, for the presidency. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the political consequences of this this legislative system that you describe. Um, you know, ha- how does this matter for for um, issues um, outside of just sort of the governance of that of, of the House of Representatives. Make a little more sense of this for us. So um, a, a couple of things. First of all, um, that is an important part of the book is that the minority party cares about more than just itself. One of the things it cares about is the presidency because the presidency is important. And uh, sometimes the worst thing for a minority party is to have a same party president because That president wants to govern, and that means getting things through Congress, which often, which can mean that the minority has to let the majority have its way or cooperate with the president when it would rather uh, throw sand in the gears and make things difficult. So uh, sometimes what happens is the minority is actually happier when they're in what's called the deep minority and the president is of the opposite party. Um, and there's, it's also difficult for them to get attention to themselves because people assume, well, if Obama's president, then Democrats must be in charge. And so what are all these Democrats in the House complaining about? So from a strategic perspective, it's a difficult situation for the minority. Um, but you also uh, raise an important point, which is that what's been happening uh, in Congress increasingly with this partisanship and polarization is uh, a sense that the only way you're going to get what you want is to have your party control everything. And um, in the process of the minority party fighting to be in the majority, which is the biggest fight, what they care about most of all, and certainly Republicans in the 70s and 80s were desperate to be in the majority, um, they uh, may have been doing things that made it difficult for them to think outside of their institution. So, uh, you know, I talk a little bit about this in the conclusion about how this all fits in with issues of polarization and policymaking and the future of American governance, um, that in some ways, the way that things have gotten so polarized in the House and so partisan and the minority is so angry and wants to take power and the majority is so desperate to keep the minority from having power, that um, there may be a narrowing of perspective and a, a lack of understanding that, you know what, everybody in Congress represents someone. So perhaps it's important for us to try to work together and help that person as opposed to thinking purely in terms of team sports. 
uh, and and that could be problematic. It's such an interesting book and, and uh, appears to have taken uh, a long time to put together with a variety of kinds of uh, pieces to this. What's next from you? Uh, is are you um, you're a Congress scholar? But are you are you working on a, uh, another book? What uh, what do we have to look forward to from you? Well, uh, at the moment, I'm working with a longtime collaborator, Doug Harris, who teaches at uh, Loyola in Baltimore. We've um, we've written some papers in the past about races in the House of Representatives. So when there's a say two people running for speaker or three people running for majority leader, um, who how do members of Congress decide which candidate to choose. And what we've been, what we're, we're working on now is a book-length project where we look at a series of these races, and this will also be historical, we'll probably go back to 1960 to the present. And what we're doing is we're doing, um, we're visiting archives around the country and gathering whip counts of these folks who ran for leadership races. Because the leadership elections are with a private ballot, so you can't know how people voted. But if you're running for office for a leadership race, you still got to get people to commit to you. So we're using this data, which in many cases has never been collected before, to figure out how members of Congress voted in these. And our goal is to find some and hope to find some common patterns about how members choose who their leader will be so that we can get some general understanding of these leadership elections. And then as a consequence, why do we have so-and-so as speaker or so-and-so as minority leader? How do these people get these jobs? If they're important, it's important to know how they got it. So that's the, the project that I'm working on right now. Yeah, well, you, Doug, we'll have to come back uh, to the podcast when that book is out. And we have your, your current book, Underdog Politics, The Minority Party in the U.S. House of Representatives, published again by Yale University Press. Matt, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. It's my pleasure.